All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a monthly podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor of Early American History at the University of Illinois Springfield, and author of the book Political Community in Revolutionary Pennsylvania, 1774 to 1800. This month on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the topic of sports in early American history. Unfortunately, our budget hasn't stretched to providing an all-expenses-paid bubble for recording at Walt Disney World, but I am joined by two friends to discuss the topic. First up is Michael Hattam, Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute, a contributing editor at the Junto, and author of Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution. And that book will be published by Yale University Press in November of this year. He was also, I'm reliably informed, an all-star catcher in Little League and defensive end for an undefeated championship peewee football team. I will, however, be checking the historical record after this episode. You don't have to do that. Thanks for joining us, Michael. (laughs) Thank you, Ken. (laughs) As ever, we're also joined by Roy Rogers, who is a history teacher at the District of Columbia International School. He hasn't given me any sporting exploits to read out, though. Thanks for joining us, Roy. Howdy, Ken. Well, I'm sorry I left out my long career as a uh, umpire for uh, t-ball and um, pitching machine kids baseball when I was in high school. True story. As someone who spent many years playing recreational cricket in the UK, I can say not enough credit is given to the people willing to give up their time to umpire matches. So you would certainly have had my thanks, Roy. (laughs) You're welcome, Ken. In the remainder of the episode, we'll be discussing sports over quite a broad period of American history, stretching from colonial times through to around about the Civil War. And one of the challenges that we're going to be discussing in this episode is what exactly we conceive of as sports. Um, There's clearly a lot of recreational and leisure activities that took place in the 18th century, but whether they can easily fit under the title of sports in the organised, ritualised sense that sports are organised today is another matter entirely. And so I thought this might be a a good place for us to start off the discussion. Um, What sports were played in colonial America and How fair is it to use the term sports? How similar are those activities compared to what we think of as sports today? Well, probably the best place to start is with um, Native American sports. Um, Some of them are, of course, pre-Columbian, but um, others continued into the period of um, conflict and contact between Europeans and um, Native Americans. And these are sports like stickball, which was prominent in the Southwest, lacrosse, which is probably the most famous of them, which was, you know, um, prominent in the Eastern Woodlands. So lots of uh, the the Iroquois territories, modern day Canada and Chunky, which was, you know, a Mississippian um, sport. 
Uh, and all of these sports, if, if you think about them together, they're central to the cultural identity of the of, ver- of, of these groups that played them. The players had prominent roles in religious and ritual life. Um, it facilitated cross-tribal, cross-group interactions. And something that's going to become pretty uh, important to our story when we talk about places like Virginia, uh, gambling was also uh, an important part of um, Native American sports culture, uh, particularly for, uh, again, lacrosse and chunky. Um, and then, of course, athletes, you know, had... in. A celebrity status again something that might be similar to us today in their communities um it was something that was celebrated um similar to how we you know we celebrate nba nba and nfl stars today and of course um athletic skill what separated from today of course athletic skill was very much associated with uh battle skill war skill so in many ways you could also see these sports as sort of like prologue or replacement to warfare um and yeah, so it's, I think it's important to start there since, of course, this was, you know, the first peoples to, to play sports in America. And I think it's particularly instructive when we're thinking about how far um, a colonial or a, a pre-colonial um, pre-Columbian exchange um, sporting culture maps onto today's sporting culture that, that we talk about something like the cross Um lacrosse um world championships in lacrosse are um particularly notable because the iroquois nation fields a competitive team in the in the world championships but their nationhood does not fit easily into modern conceptions of nationhoods um in the same way that their cultural ties to the sport of lacrosse don't fit easily into the westernized competitive version of lacrosse that is played by the countries that compete at those world championships and so when um when the world lacrosse championships take place there are questions about um whether the sponsoring countries will recognise um, the Iroquois nation's passports that have led to some some very high profile um, problems and, and and disputes over Iroquois participation. Um, but there's also aspects of the the rules of of lacrosse in which um, the Iroquois nation often use um, hickory. Lacrosse. Um, I'm I'm not a lacrosse fan myself, so I don't know the the accurate term for the equipment that they use. But they use hickory sticks and and nets as opposed to more modern, um, lightweight composite materials, and that causes um, a lot of friction with other teams as well. But it shows how the the cultural significance of the of, of the wood that's used for the Iroquois has deep meaning within Native American communities and the, their competitors do not understand that connection with culture because for an American, a Canadian, an English team, it seems like just a piece of sporting equipment. And so we see even in the modern day what exactly we talk about when we talk about sporting culture. Um, there are a lot of assumptions that really are swept up in all of these things that we don't spend as much time thinking about as maybe we should. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
I mean, it's reflective of a long trajectory, historically and culturally speaking, of differences between the role of sport in indigenous cultures in North America versus uh, transplanted European cultures. Even the games that they played that were somewhat similar to those played by Europeans, like indigenous versions of uh, football or wrestling or pole games, uh, the context in which those games were played in indigenous communities gave them a different meaning than they had in European cultures, uh, not least because they were more deeply incorporated into the, the social and religious lives of indigenous peoples. Uh, they often uh, played a role in things like fertility ceremonies and burial rituals, and that's very different from the role of sport in European society and culture. So Roy's pointed out the ways in which um, sporting prowess gave status within Native American communities and, and mentioned ways that in, 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 a, in another reading you could see it as a, a, a prologue or a preparation for warfare or certainly something that facilitated um, contact and competition between different um, indigenous peoples. What would the situation look like if we were applying those um, those lenses and those categories to uh, the settler populations, the, the the populations of New England and Virginia in colonial times? So in Puritan New England, it's a very different situation. Uh, sport and leisure uh, recreation was not really incorporated into the religious lives of New England Puritans in the 17th century like it was for uh, indigenous peoples. It was a significant part of social life in New England, especially as you get towards the end of the 17th century when church membership and piety in general uh, was in a long decline. And this was a big concern for the elite Puritan ruling class. And the magistrates there uh, sought to tamp down on sport and recreational activity, including forms of gambling. Uh, but there was a lot of recreation or recreational sport going on in New England. It just was not always welcomed by the ruling class. Once you get past the uh, halfway covenant and into the 18th century, as the Puritan church starts to lose the authority that it originally had, uh, the colony's leadership started to take a little more of a liberal uh, view of sport and recreation. But there was a period at the end of the 17th century where sport became a topic of concern to the colony's ruling elites because of the religious changes that were occurring. Right. I mean, the Puritans were just, were kind of outliers, though. That's the important thing that is to understand, both within the context of English culture, but also in the context of colonial British colonial North America right the, you know the specific Puritan objection to sport as a waste of time and an indulgence and all these kinds of, of things particularly the ways in which it hooked up with gambling to go back to the earlier thing is um, is really important right because in many ways Puritans were much more the exception than the rule um, and this is of course particularly clear when you move south to Virginia and Maryland where horse racing is central to the culture and in, and it's it there, there's much more, on an anthropological level, there's much more parallels between the role of horse racing culture um, in Virginia and in Maryland and the sort of things that I was talking about when, you know, we went over um, indigenous 
uh, sport um, because it's part of their social structure. It, it reinforces the social structure. It provides moments for people to show, you know, their mastery of of, of things and their and their place, their master of the social structure and their important place. And of course, gambling. Uh, you know, anyone who's read these read these letters through the 17th and the 18th century knows that gambling is is a huge thing in Virginia um, and Maryland and the, the Chesapeake and and further south as well. And that's and that's really important to to understand because more more settlers were interested in sport than if you just look at Cotton Mather whining about. Um, you know, people playing games, uh, or or even earlier, uh, Puritans and Pilgrims. One thing that I think is interesting, though, here is that a lot of what we're talking about with the the discourse is that sport is a distraction or a recreation when we've been talking about the role of sports within English culture. And yeah, that might be that the Puritans see it as an unwelcome distraction, whereas in Virginia and Maryland, it is baked in as some of the most important social events. Um, on, on the social calendar. But you mentioned, Roy, the way in which sporting activity in indigenous communities was um, as a way of honing particular skills that might be useful elsewhere. Um, the, the the famous story from, from growing up in, in Britain is the way that football, or given that we're on an American podcast, I should probably call it soccer, um, was seen by authorities as a distraction from men carrying out their necessary archery practice. And that yeah, this was directing people away from the military skills that they needed to be performing. It, it is clear that in what we've been talking about in both the New England and the Virginian sporting cultures, that this is seen very much as something that is separate from other functions that society might otherwise be expected to perform. That still has its use. Um, yeah, we, we all need time to, to let off steam and to... Uh, and to um, engage in activities that, that that allow us to relax but it is interesting that it's not quite so incorporated at least in this period into something that's necessarily directly talked about as societally useful yeah it's also i mean if we're talking about the context of the chesapeake uh, over the course of the 17th century it's important to understand that uh, horse racing and gambling is something that developed over time, and the time in which it developed was crucial in defining what horse racing and gambling came to mean to the society, especially in the 18th century. It's after uh, Bacon's Rebellion and this time of real upheaval and challenge to the ruling class in Virginia that horse racing starts to become uh, what it would be in the 18th century, these sort of choreographed social events uh, that effectively had rules when uh, earlier in the 17th century, horse racing could basically be a free-for-all in terms of how it was conducted. Uh, but by the 18th century, it's become more orderly and standardized, at, uh, less violent, uh, and becomes an outlet for this new uh, post-Bacon's Rebellion Virginia ruling class for their own uh, competitiveness. And it's also a way of displaying or performing uh, their status, especially gambling. Yeah, that I, I actually I want to double down on what you're saying there. I think that I think that while Ken is right that it didn't have a, a social 
like a pause a, a social purpose it had a deep social function right that is really really important because it's it's really becomes so important once you see the at the late 18th, early 19th century, the reaction against this culture, right? It's a really important place of the culture wars in the Chesapeake between, you know, um, Episcopalians um, and and more sort of you know, non-evangelicals, basically, in the Chesapeake and evangelicals. Like, it's a huge part of that culture war that births the Methodists, that births, births the Baptists, um, and, and really ushers in a huge cultural change in the Chesapeake. And that, again, and, dam- and damages this, this culture and, and sort of remove doesn't entirely remove it, but, but at least there's new sources of social status and new sites where men can perform and show their mastery of, you know, the Chesapeake social order. And, you know, horse racing for a long time was that. And again, it, it, I do think it really does parallel, you know, you know, Native Amer- uh, Native American forms of sport because just how important it is, and you noted this show. It's an outlet, right, for the for these men to compete against each other in a way that because like there's only so much, like so many offices that these men can hold. Many like families have monopolies on vestries. They have monopolies on seats in the House of Burgess. So you have you know surplus energy, surplus places that these men need to be able to show that I'm a master, I'm a patriarch too and horse racing was a really important way for them to do that and gambling was, you know, the dark side of that where, you know, fortunes were won and more frequently lost um, at, at gambling and we're not even and we haven't even talked about cards, which, you know, I'm the kind of person who would say cards are a sport but, you know, other people, other people may not and, um, but that's also tied into this culture as well well, I, I come from a family of competitive bridge players, so I, I'm definitely with you on on on, on cards as a sport. And ha- having seen the preparation that you you need to undertake, it's um, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be undersold. Um, but leaving leaving aside um, modern commentary, I, I I totally agree with you that there is a very important social function, and this is actually one of the things. If, if you're interested in the themes that we we're talking about on the podcast, look at some of the primary sources that recount um, what a, a horse racing day was like in early Virginia. I mean, it, it 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 does have a lot of parallels to, I guess, what college football tailgating today or something like that in terms of this being a huge social occasion where people go to be seen, people dress and participate in rituals in a way that they want to make important statements about who they are, not just because it's an important statement of their being, but because it reinforces their their ties to a broader community and when you add in the gambling it allows people to um make competitive claims that they can well literally put their money where their mouth is um and and some of the some of the um some some of the primary sources really elucidate this in in quite fantastic detail because on the one hand you've got these events that are very hierarchical you've got to have a certain amount of money to have a thoroughbred horse you've got to have a certain amount of money to be able to gamble the sums that are staked on this but at the same time this is done in full public view and it is a much more mixed um, audience in terms of class and in terms of race and in terms of gender than in almost any other social 
social event that you would get. Um, and so it's this really interesting system where you see all the functions of Virginian society on display, but at the same time, the rules of the game allow ambitious people or people that want to change the system to articulate claims about why that system should change through the ritualized forms of either entering your horse for competition or um, gambling or throwing down other challenges related to the main event. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, what you're describing uh, this horse racing as a social event sounds very much like an election day, uh, which is one of the the other times when interclass gatherings happen. And I think this interclass nature uh, is really important because in the gentry's eyes, the role of uh, the non-elites as the audience is basically there to be witness to this new uh, gentry culture and the values of this uh, new turn of the 18th century Virginia elite, uh, materialism, individualism, uh, competitiveness, independence. Um, the gentry is performing effectively these values at these horse races for the audience of non-elites. And the idea there, which kind of parallels our, our modern sporting culture in a way, is that these uh conspicuous displays of wealth, whether it's, you know, owning a horse or waging, uh, you know, large sums of money on horse races, uh, were intended to display gentry culture as something to emulate or aspire to. Right. I mean, it's important, and I definitely agree with Ken, I think actually some of the best and most easy, easiest to understand primary sources are ones revolving around the disputes around horse racing. Like, you can also go and read evangelical criticisms of horse racing. It's very easy to catch, you know, their arguments. It's not subtle, right? You can read William Mead, you know, in old churches, families... Um, and ministers of Virginia, you know, just denounced this entire culture, you know, that he was born into and, and was a part of that his, you know, his family can trace origins to. And it's, it's really useful. I think the thing about sport, public facing sport in particular, um, is the ways in which because there's these set of rules, it lays ritual out really clearly. And you can see, like, the priorities of the power structure are very much on display. And I, and I think that the Chesapeake and why we spend so much time um, dwelling on it is it's really well documented. That's number one. And number two is um, it um, really does lay bare the, the foundations because, um, you know, it, it both provides a space for enslaved people to participate in the broader public culture of Virginia, but it's also, of course, reinforcing their status uh, by these conspicuous displays of mastery, conspicuous displays of wealth that these planters are doing while, while, while racing their horses so um and that's one of the things that's just so endlessly fascinating about um about chesapeake horse culture and, and, and i think that there's something significant that this develops into um horse culture as well that if we're looking at other events that might have been gambled on at the time we might talk about cockfighting for example but you need you need more wealth you need more um labor to be able to run a successful thoroughbred horse racing operation and therefore you can add a veneer of respectability to horse racing where something that is more open to participation and more intrinsically violent as 
cockfighting then can become marginalised as a means of separating elites from those that are that, that do not deserve to be treated with the same sort of respect. And so it's not just looking at what goes on in horse culture that's important. It's what does horse culture signify that other sporting events and other, sport, um, and other recreational pastimes don't signify that tells us a lot about the development of the Chesapeake elite. And there's a reason why horse racing is one of the sports that is continuously played throughout uh, since the European settlement of North America. Uh, it's never gone away. You know, it, it's been, been illegal in various places in, 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 at different times, but it's never been quite stamped out, I think, for a lot of the reasons that we've that we've laid out here. Yeah, and I think that we're, we're going to see, I mean, this is setting up themes that are going to be uh, recurring right, throughout our discussion, having to do with issues uh, like the interrelationship between sport and recreation and culture, uh, sport and society and especially uh, the relationship between class and sporting culture. Absolutely. And, and, and that's probably a good time for us to, to move on to how sporting culture develops after the revolution and, and, and into the early national periods. Um, I think an interesting way of, of getting at this, um, I am coming back to my earlier point about, you know, is there a, not necessarily a, a function, but a social usefulness about sports. Um, if we look at the Continental Association, which is possibly my my favourite primary source from the revolution, um, horse racing, cockfighting, and the rituals associated with, with those uh, pastimes are expressly given up in the Continental Association so that Virginians can show how serious they are. You know, that the, the, these do not perform a sufficiently, well, maybe to use 2020 parlance, a sufficiently essential service to the nation in a time of crisis um, that, that, that horse racing and cockfighting should be allowed to continue um, while, while the nation was, or the proto-nation, was focusing on, on such a crisis with, with British gov- governance. And the reason that, the reason that I, I mention this is that when we start looking at some of the newer forms, and I, I, I say newer advisedly, it's not like these, these sports are coming out of nowhere, but when we look at the justification for recreation and sporting activity in the early 19th century, it becomes a way proving physical prowess through sporting activity becomes a way of showing particular societal usefulness. Um, the, um, here, I'm, 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 set, I'm setting, I'm talking obliquely, um, I'm referring in my mind to um, to boxing in particular and the development of, um, as in um, the title of Elliot Gorn's book, The Manly Art, and the way that there is a particular physicality and masculine and even martial prowess that is associated with boxing as it develops into its more organised form in the late 1700s and, and early 1800s. And I think that is an important transition that we start um, moving some of these things into the justification for what previously were thought of as non-essential into something that is essential and need to be encouraged. Right. And I think it's also important to understand that like a lot of those kind of changes are traditionally placed in the late 19th century, but it's actually more recent scholarship has said that there's much more continuity. And that's, I think, actually one of the things I think that's really important to understand is there's much more continuity than we traditionally think 
um, when it comes to sporting culture. Um, you know, usually we tend to think of these we tend to think about the rituals and things that we do today as relatively new innovations. But if you look, there's actually way more continuity. I mean, as much as there's change, there's an equal amount of continuity. And boxing's a really great example. Like, people traditionally think of, you know, the muscular Christianity of the 19th century, where a lot of the things Ken said gets read in a very religious um, religious way in the late 19th century, you know, with Theodore Roosevelt being the most famous example of it. But those themes not necessarily as Christianized as they become in the late part of the 19th century, are present in the late 18th and early 19th century. So it's, I think there's, in, there's really important precursors, really important continuity that's important to keep in mind uh, compared to how we traditionally think about these things. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, though, if we're thinking about from, you know, the early 19th century. I mean, I'm thinking about if we're talking about boxing, its sort of predecessor in fighting, which was a prominent part of uh, backcountry culture in the South. This is a, a place where uh, work and family routines were very different uh, than they were on the coast and in more urban areas. Uh, there was less uh, institutional restraint in the form of religion or local government. So there's much less uh, structure uh, generally in the backcountry. And when you sort of combine that with uh, Southern honor culture, it, it made fighting an important part of uh, backcountry society and culture. Ab- ab- absolutely, and I, and I think that and, you know another one of the transitions that you see is that boxing's rules, that the Queensberry rules, are are literally promulgated by a marquis, um, literally pro- promulgated by a um, member of the British aristocracy, um, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting about the way that this transforms in the early nineteenth century, right? That you have these roots of prize fighting that are very rowdy, rough and ready affairs, um, incredibly violent. I mean, just reading some of the accounts of the of, of, of the fights that take place, you know, very often they are fights that are, are that are practically to the death. Um, but that in people wanting to defend the value of things that are being questioned by the time you get moral reformers opining on um, on prize fighting by the early 19th century. They talk about the importance of physical virtue. Um, again, a lot of this discourse is going on in, in, in cities or in urbanising areas where people are worried that there is a loss of um, the masculinity that you used to see in in, in in rural areas, and so they talk about boxing as a as a proxy for for this, but in making it a proxy for previous virtues, it becomes more institutionalized and much more carefully written and so you have this really interesting overlap of an increasingly um, professional formal organized boxing culture and then you have this informal prize fighting culture that um you know a reforming editor like horace greeley lambasts on a regular basis in in the in the pages of his newspaper and talks about you know what a a despicable way this is of of, of preying on the um the emotions of of young men to to give themselves up so much but when you read those accounts you realize you know that these are these are fights that are basically unregulated you know that there is there is no one that's stepping in to provide any sort of oversight um and 
the 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 sport of boxing um you know in what today we'd think you know the precursors to boxing boards of control and 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 such like uh, are creating a narrative that's designed to incorporate more of that moral imperative for the physical and of the physical necessity and the importance of preserving some sense of masculinity but putting it in a much more structured form yeah i mean there's a number of other contexts that are uh, critical certainly to uh, prize fighting by the middle of the 19th century it becomes a more uh, popular thing in urban areas and and as a result it's sort of uh, informed by all the uh, economic demographic and social uh, changes that were happening in the cities at the time. Uh, one of the more famous or first major prize fights was in 1849 between James Sullivan, who was an Irish immigrant and a saloon keeper in New York City, and Tom Heyer, who was an American-born butcher. And of course, this is at the time of a great cl- conflict in New York City uh, and other urban areas between the native-born population and the large number of uh, Irish immigrants pouring in. So there's a decidedly uh, nativist aspect to the emergence of this type of prize fighting. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about it, too, is that we can see sort of the nascent role of media in driving sporting culture in this uh, famous example, which was the subject of an article by Elliot Gorn. Uh, The fight actually took place in Maryland, And newspapers up and down the eastern seaboard were uh, reporting on this fight uh, that was going to happen and then the results. And it created a uh, a public furor. And native-born Americans were supporting higher and many uh, Irish immigrants uh, and non-Irish immigrants were supporting Sullivan. And so this idea of uh, the role of media and creating a sense of not just spectacle, but a sense of identity between audience and athlete, uh, we can really see that start to develop in boxing or or prize fighting uh, in the mid-19th century. And that association with um, with immigrant culture, and and especially Irish immigrant culture, um, is one of the things that leads to a really interesting discourse over over boxing in New York. Um, Of of, of course, it's highly stereotyped, but... um, these prize fights are are connected with with heavy drinking um with um with immigrant groups and so temperance reformers start stepping in and trying to use the public horror at some of the um at, at some of the stories of bouts in, in in new york city to point out that one of the things that pushes people into participating in these fights is the promise of a lot of money that's um, a, you know, a, a big purse that's put on by a tavern keeper that knows that he can sell more beer and that if it wasn't for all the other commercial um, advantages that w- were perceived by putting on a fight of this scale and this nature um, that you wouldn't have um, that you wouldn't have these very rowdy, potentially dangerous, potentially riot-inducing um, 
um, if, if events taking place. And so there is a we, we see also this rise of a moral panic sort of, of, of discourse, um, not just about immigrants, not just about um, temperance reform, but tying this to public safety and public order. Um, and and it's very it, it's it's interesting to see those themes emerging in the 1800s, even when things aren't quite as 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 organized um, as, as they are in modern day sporting culture. Yeah, I mean, they're going to continue, right? When we're talking about prize fighting in the mid-19th century, all these fighters are white. It's not until the the late 19th century that we start to see African-American boxers trying to break into uh, the arena of uh, white prize fighting. And there's a really excellent book on this by uh, Lewis Moore called I Fight for a Living uh, that chronicles the... Uh, ways in in which whites try to uh, exclude and the justifications that they use to exclude African Americans from boxing. I think some of those are are obvious, but he also draws out a number that are maybe less obvious. But that dynamic of the relationship between boxing and the social order is something that uh, continues, but the focus turns from class to race. Yes, absolutely, and 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 I think that's the that's the interesting thing with um, Irish immigrant populations compared to native-born Americans. You know, how that how that feeds into the descriptions of how they fight, and uh, yeah, the 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 excessive rowdiness and, and and violence, and sort of the the desire to see the, the the immigrants desire to see his opponent completely vanquished and beaten bloody whereas the american just wants his honor and and and, and to win and then will step away and 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 retreat fairly um you you see all those discourses that will then be um that will then be perpetuated and 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 yes i'm i'm sure you and i could talk for for uh, for a long time about the 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 ways in which discourse about boxing has reflected the social norms of American life, but we, but that might get us away from some other early American um, aspects of sporting culture that we wanted to talk about. So, so maybe we should talk about um, other sporting endeavors that begin um, to take off in in America in the in the early eighteen hundreds. Yeah. So one of the things that starts to take hold in this period is the idea of exercise and uh, physical health and the emergence of of what they called in the early 19th century gymnastics. After the revolution, there's a real increase in the number of people uh, writing about and and thinking about uh, the value of recreation, especially in the context of a Republican society and uh, Republican education. And so Americans drew on uh, the writings of a number of Europeans, philosophers and doctors, um, <clears throat> who stressed the interdependence of the mind and the body. And as a result, physical exercise became part of the, the notion of self-cultivation. And the idea there was that uh, exercise refreshed uh, the mind and improved you know, your mental ability. It's very easy, I think, for us to take this for granted now, uh, but it was not taken for granted in the 18th century. And so it's really an important change. And one of the reasons that it's such an important change is that it has embedded in it this idea that how you behave 
uh, physically, what you do with your body has a direct impact on how you think and vice versa. And that has lots of uh, unintended uh, consequences or unintended implications, I think, uh, not least for the way that exercise or, or physical activity was seen as a manly endeavor and not something women should engage in, right? Because if uh, women behaved uh, like men, they were likely to think more like men. And so over the course of the first half of the 19th century, uh, female exercise would begin to become more accepted, but it, it took new ways of thinking for that to happen. It's also interesting to note that this is the period when public education was developing, and this way of thinking led to the notion of schools having playgrounds because children needed a certain amount of uh, recreation and playtime during the day to keep their minds refreshed. And there's a tension, though, between recreation and sport, right? Like, that is tied into some of the things you were talking about with your discussion of boxing, right? Like, sport could sometimes get out of control. It can involve gambling. It can sometimes, things like boxing, horse racing, all these things can can threaten the social, the bourgeois social order, the Christian social order. And in many ways, recreation is disciplining that into specific actions that individuals take or small groups take, right? Like, you know, you look at like John Quincy Adams swimming in the Potomac, right? Like famously, you could bump into the, the president of the United States uh, swimming in the, which anyone who's been to Washington, D.C. in the 21st century, the 20th century, the idea of swimming in the Potomac is a reprehensible idea, but much, much, much more palpable in, in the late, early 19th century, right? And he was big on recreation, making sure that there's the right amount of physical exercise because that sharpens the mind, ideas from you know, Rousseau and other, and other Enlightenment thinkers. But, you know, you don't want that to become sport because in some ways sport can get out of control. Um, and that's an important part. It's, it's partially a class dynamic. It's partially a political dynamic that is really important to keep in mind, right? That that is going to continue as we go along, right? This constant tension between recreation, which in many ways is this acceptable bourgeois Protestant category, while you have sport, which can become this immigrant, Catholic, eventually you know non-white or dubious or, or or even worse to some people, an intermixing between you know Europeans and and, and non-Europeans. Um, like there's the dangers of sport is disciplined by the the pleasures of recreation. Although it's interesting because it's the part of the fear of sports is the inherent corruption that becomes introduced once you introduce competition. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised, for example, that the first time we mentioned swimming on this podcast was John Quincy Adams and not um, Ben Franklin's autobiography, where he talks about how much he was able to improve himself when 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 he, when he started swimming. Um, but, but regardless, um, Roy, Roy's point is is still very well taken that this is something that Franklin did for for self improvement and that these displays that we've talked about with horse racing it's a way of showing your gentility and that you're and and a certain amount of noblesse noblesse oblige that your pageantry around showing off your your prize racehorse can lead to to such a, a public gathering it's when the gambling comes in and there's the potential for massive financial losses that it becomes much more 
much more threatening and and that and that change is important and i think it's going side by side with another change which is and i've, I've mentioned it earlier but I, I i do think it's 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 worth underscoring here um urbanization you know that we've been talking about horse racing you know, very rural pursuit because you needed to be able to ride a horse to get around faster. You know, if you could not control a horse, you lost your means of transport. Boxing, a bit more threatening, but at the same time, you need a certain amount of physical strength to be able to to conduct rural labour. By the time you're going into urban centers you're, you're you're looking at um immigrant populations in in new york city people aren't as mobile people might be performing physical labor on the docks but you don't want that physical labor to be uncontrolled you want that to be used for economic purposes if you're from the higher orders of society and so finding ways in which you can still keep people active is important competition is a way of doing that but how do you how do you keep a limit on it and i think it's it's really interesting to see that some of the ways in which the functions change i I know we're going we're about to move on to talking about the development of of baseball and cricket in 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 american culture and that you don't you you see rudimentary forms of these games but they're often thought of as as children's games in america in the in the 1700s by the 1800s it becomes safer for them to be adult games because that's a way of hearkening to some more rural ideal without going to the extremes of the of the violent masculinity that can often be associated with rural areas and that you see these these more controlled energetic but team community-based exercises like baseball and cricket um that that seem to keep all those different things that we've been talking about in a happier balance yeah, I mean, in terms of this relationship between uh, urbanization and class structure or class order uh, is how we get in the middle of the 19th century the, the move towards urban parks. Uh, Central Park is a product of this, one of the first products of this. And, and the big idea there is to provide a, a pastoral space for the city's working class, right, where they could have access to something resembling the country they could have access to fresh air um, because the elites of the city leave the city for their recreation, right? They create country clubs outside of the city and uh, they play sports that are uh, out of reach of the working class like uh, uh, polo and tennis or golf. And so part of the reason that we have public parks in this country, the reason that they originated really was an effort by elites to Uh, mollify the working class to keep them from unleashing the kind of energy that Ken is talking about. And as we get the rise of the middle class generally in the middle of the 19th century, there's a rejection of that older type of violent sport, what historians have called male bachelor sporting culture, uh, toward a less violent and and more refined and mollifying forms of uh, recreation in urban settings. 
And, and if I can just jump in quickly to make a, a, a cheap joke, I mean, but, but, but with a serious point, it's so that you don't get the immigrants um, hopping over the river to Hoboken, New Jersey and, and starting fights over who can use the Elysian fields, um, you know, where, where there were actually riots to, um, over who was allowed to play what game in, 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 in public green spaces. Um, and that, that sense that there was a restive population in cities willing to willing to travel across rivers and to travel substantial distances to play games was something that needed to be accounted for. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with Central Park early on uh, was that uh, there were so many rules about how the working class could use the space uh, to the point that it was not getting used as much as the elites had hoped um, because they had tried to impose all these rules on how the working class would use the space. And the working class effectively uh, rejected those rules by ignoring the space. And as Ken says, they were more than willing to go find their own space where they didn't have to play by those rules. Well, we can't leave the tension between sport and recreation without um, talking about the role of evangelical culture plays in all of this. Um, I mean, one is the important thing to understand is that a lot of it came in opposition to gambling. Um, and, that it, and that tension between... You know, competitiveness and gambling and seeing as that bringing in device and sin is one of the reasons why so many evangelical reformers were opposed to sport. Um, and that and then they attempt to come up with Christian evangelical alternatives to it is where you see the rise of a lot of re- of, of recreation. And part of that is tied in the Central Park. Part of that is tied into the creation of, of gymnasiums, of gymnasiums, of, you know, Kellogg is tied into this. There's all these kinds of reformist impulses that emerge out of evangelicalism to try to find outlets for athletic activity, for recreation that is not sport, particularly not competitive sport that could lead to gambling and thus the various vices that come come from it. It's not until after the Civil War that you start seeing, and this is where that muscular Christianity comes in, where you start seeing a, a tie between competitiveness and evangelical culture that is not really present in the early 19th century, in the mid-19th century. And that is a huge cultural change that comes after the war. At this point, they're much more opposed. And that's where, and again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, there's this conception of recreation as being Protestant, white, proper bourgeois, and you have sport as immigrant, Catholic, non-white, working class and the interplay between those two is a really important of a lot of urban cultural tensions that go on in the first half of the 19th century. And evangelicalism is really sitting at the, at, at, at the, at the forefront of it. If we're talking about some important cultural tensions um, that, that, that have their basis in religion, I, we haven't got on to perhaps one of the most important holy wars that's ever been Fought and and I refer here to the battle between baseball and cricket. And Michael, as pro- as producer, has been trying very hard to to limit mentions of of cricket in this podcast. But I remain steadfast in my determination that cricket is the greatest gift ever given to civilization, um, and that it is perhaps the um, saddest wrong turn taken in American history, that it um, eschewed the opportunity to make cricket its national game and instead picked up on, um, on baseball as a national pastime. 
Obviously, my, my tongue is a little bit in my cheek as I, I say this, but um, in the early 1800s, um, baseball and cricket sort of vied for supremacy in some ways as the main stickball sports that were played, especially in in northern cities uh, prior to prior to the Civil War. And the the debate over baseball's origins has um, has gone on a long time. Um, to sum to sum up the debates, um, one of the earliest historians and observers of, of baseball was an Englishman named Henry Chadwick, who noticed the similarities between baseball and um, an English children's game called Rounders, which is is not played seriously by anyone over the age of twelve, and this caused great controversy in. Um, baseball circles after the Civil War when this idea that baseball was um, simply a a glorified version of rounders was seen as an implicit attack on um, American manlyhood, on on American nationalism and, and American pride. There's been a huge amount of research done into the origins of baseball and it turns out that um, Chadwick was wrong. Um, he happened to have simply by chance to have grown up in the area where rounders was most popular um as a, as as a children's game um but in terms of sports that were referred to as baseball they do trace back to to England and to much earlier in the 1700s um than was previously thought although it should be noted that this term of baseball um is applied very loosely to to games that would not resemble anything approaching the modern version, um, either either of baseball and cricket. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit more um, about the the development of baseball and and, and cricket um, in 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 early America because again it, it illuminates a lot of the themes that we've been talking about. Um, at this point, as much as it it pains me to cede the microphone to a Yankees fan to to talk about baseball. Um, Michael, what 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 do you want to say about the the early development of of baseball in America? I mean, baseball has a sort of murky origins in the sense that there were versions of ball games like town ball, tons of local variations of of that that were played throughout the 18th century. I mean, it's really not until the period right before uh, the Civil War uh, that we start to get what we might think of as baseball from a modern perspective. And that originates in New York City uh, with the Knickerbocker Baseball Club, which was, of course, named after the the fictional author of Washington Irving's uh, satirical novel, The History of New York, from 1809. But it's in New York where the first baseball clubs are established. It's where the rules of the game were standardized. Uh, Before that, there were different versions of the rules in uh, uh, New England, uh, in New York, but eventually in the New York rules uh, came to be the standard. Uh, it's interesting because basically until the mid to late 20th century, it was assumed that baseball was a rural game that was uh, transplanted to the city because uh, people living in these urban settings longed for the country. Uh, but since the 1970s, it's become accepted that that really was not the case and that uh, baseball was... Uh, a distinctly urban game and and a, a product of the urban and industrial setting uh, in which it, it emerged. 
this process of standardization, though, is important because it's a process that we saw with horse racing and then boxing, and that if we were to continue our discussion past the Civil War, we would see repeated over and over again. Uh, games get standardized uh, through rules and uh, some kind of centralization, and then sort of slowly become professionalized. And, and baseball becomes professionalized in New York uh, fairly quickly. Now, one of the things that's important about it is that it's able to be played in the city. Uh, it needs some space, but not a lot of space. But also that uh, the urban media bought into baseball from the get-go. And so they would report on games. This is when the box score was developed. Uh, and these games would would draw large crowds, much to the chagrin of the, the city's elites who, who condemned the game uh, and the people's interest in the game. And so we can see a lot of the tensions and developments that we've already talked about in, in the urban origins of baseball. And one of the things that's, that's interesting is that implicit in, and sometimes explicit in a lot of those criticisms is why are adults spending so much time on, on a child's game? And, and I know I've made some flippant comments earlier about baseball being a, a child's game, but that's actually baseball's advantage um, in that it's something that grows up and has um, a history in America that by the time it becomes institutionalized, it taps into something that is that is much broader in its cultural appeal um, because it is it is familiar despite all the different variations that we we, we talk about. Um, it is familiar to people in in many different cities and, and easily transportable, um, and that's something that cricket doesn't have. Um, there is a lot of interest in cricket, and you can find reports of cricket being played in cities in north and south and east and west before the civil war um it develops strongly institutionalized clubs especially in new york and philadelphia um but it is the game of immigrants um especially english immigrants um a lot of the clubs that are founded are st george's or st andrews clubs um it needs more specialized equipment it needs more specialized playing grounds and um Historians have done analyses of who played baseball and cricket um, and were members of these 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 early clubs prior to the Civil War. And you find that, A, they are much more likely, um, cricket players are much more likely to be immigrants and not native born. Although that varies by city. Philadelphia has a much stronger native cricket culture than, than Boston or New York. Um, but they're also likely to be older, again, partially as a result of its of its connection with with merchants and and a, and a, and a wealthier immigrant. And that's one of the reasons that the sport never takes off, that it's never it's never able to to tap into ideas of Americanness um, that become important even prior to the civil that are important even prior to the Civil War um, and. And that it doesn't take off, and that and that actually, where you find some of the most historically significant instances of cricket, it, um, it's where people that are wanting to play some sort of version of baseball literally fight to defend their fields so that it does not get used by, but by, by by immigrants wanting to, um, wanting to play cricket, um, and so it's 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 interesting that these two sports that have a a huge amount of similarities, yeah, the the distance between that the ball is bowled or 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 pitched in baseball is is very similar 
both bat and ball games. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of similarities in form, but these social and cultural um, attachments in America were absolutely critical to which one became the the lasting success and which um, which has never never really taken off. Yeah, you see, I, I mean, cricket does take off in other places in the British Empire in the 19th century. <laughs> and how. <laughs> and how, but not in the United States, and uh, partly because it was no longer part of the British Empire at that point, and there were all kinds of political and nationalist implications for that. Uh, but I think that you're, you're right, too, that the long tradition of just ball games generally uh, from the 18th century to the 19th century meant that there was already a uh, foundation there waiting to be codified and in some sense marketed as the American version of cricket or the American ball game. Uh, one of the interesting things about the development of the game in New York City after the clubs become professionalized and start vying for the best players, uh, one of the justifications that pro baseball writers gave was that uh, the game developed a sense of uh, local pride in the city. And so when the New York teams would go uh, uh, play games in, in Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, you know, they were covered well by the media. And it was, uh, you know, this idea that developing civic pride uh, was supposed to be a real positive good. But uh, the elites never bought that argument. And one of the things that they said or, or countered with was how can the game develop civic pride when most of the players on the New York team were not actually from New York? Uh, and that's a d dynamic that becomes embedded in American professional sports much earlier uh, than it did in England. I mean, you know, think how many English football clubs still relied heavily on, you know, local talent for their player pool well into the 1980s. And so they were able to retain a really intense uh, local connection uh, that was different from how uh, baseball fandom developed in terms of maintaining some sense of uh, civic pride, uh, but without the connections between the players and the place. Yes, it it it, it really is re remarkable how how fast that develops, and and it's interesting that that becomes such a um, pejorative way for elites to to criticize sport when we think of something like the development of of college sports. Um, and you college sports have been attached to the identity of America's top universities from the from the 1860s onwards um, especially um, yeah, the, the most prominent early example being Harvard's rowing team um, defeating competing and defeating um, Oxford in, in, in the 1860s um, and this being a way of Harvard being able to um, to prove the superiority of American education um, to to British education, and, and in some ways that's that's very curious, right? That you know how how do you um, prove the dominance of a university by showing that you've got fitter fitter athletes? Um, and it's very, uh, but it's very, but it's very interesting that Harvard then become very defensive over this. Uh, um, only a couple of decades later, when the football teams and the rowing teams of other universities that are now in the Ivy League start being able to defeat, um, start being able to defeat Harvard, and suddenly they're not quite so sure that the the quality of your rowing eight is the best way of um, 
of, of, of judging the quality of the university. It's it's interesting both that this becomes a proxy for community and civic pride, but also the the challenges that elites have in wanting to promote other aspects of their city and their community and not wanting it all to become subsumed into what might seem as a competitive race for the bottom to the bottom yeah it's it's striking how fast that happened the way that uh, sports got tangled with this notion of pride and whether it's national pride or a civic pride or pride in your school it helps create a deep sense of connection with a place on multiple levels. And we can see that clearly throughout the 20th century, but it's really in this uh, middle of the 19th century that you see the origins of that and, and that you see it take hold very quickly. Although there's clearly much more that we could talk about with the development of, of early American sporting culture. I think that brings us to quite a natural um, closing point, looking at American sporting culture on, on the eve of civil war. Um, but before we, before we conclude and say our goodbyes, what are the main takeaways that we'd want people to, to have from today's discussion? Um, Roy, what are your final thoughts? So I, I have two. Uh, the first is continuity. Um, we, we, there's much more continuity than we traditionally stress when it comes to sport h- history. Like sitting here in the 21st century, it can look very different than um, indigenous uh, sport, um, 18th century horse racing, um, or 19th century boxing, or early baseball. But actually, and this ties into my second point, which is the importance of sports as ritual and the ways in which the ritual nature of sports reinforces and expresses the social order, that creates those continuities. There's huge amounts of change. It's impossible to say that how basketball is played in the 21st century is the same as how lacrosse was played by you know the Iroquois. But there's huge amounts of continuity as well, particularly, again, the ways in which it's... A ritual, sports are a ritual that is really important to understanding the social order and both the tensions within that social order, but also the ways in that that social order reinforces itself and propagates itself throughout society. Michael, what are your final thoughts? So I think that one of the things I'd like listeners to take away from this, especially those who are maybe unfamiliar with the topic, uh, is the fact that Sport is a really valuable topic of historical inquiry, right? If you think of all the ways that contemporary sports reflect our current culture, the the ways that it's interrelated with our social attitudes and our political institutions, for that matter, uh, then it really should be no surprise that the same was the case uh, for sport in early America. And so for a long time, historians did not pay much attention to sport And it was really only in the 1960s and 1970s that sport history became its own uh, sort of subfield. Um, But I hope that the listener takes away from this discussion a sense of just how valuable a lens sport can be to the social, cultural, and political history of a society. Uh, Because we've seen so many recurring themes and important themes in American history uh, generally, whether it's urbanization, nationalism, uh, the media, class, issues of uh, gender and race, all played a role and reflected uh, the, the sporting culture of this country at any given time. 
And, and I think my final thoughts pick up a little bit on things that, that both of you have said, Roy and, and Michael. So, Roy, you talk about the role that um, the continuities and the supporters ritual have in, in being able to um, to observe any any given society's social structure and social order. Um, I think one of the interesting things there also is that it gives us a very good lens into challenges and changes within that social order. That, be- that because sports form such a regular background to people's lives, that tracing events over time really means that we can see when the social order begins to shift, when there are overt challenges when there are challenges that um, or when there are changes that seem to occur without as much direct conflict um, and I think that's one of the that's one of the real values of studying um, early American sports um, the other thing I'd say is that um, not only is sports history valuable it can also be particularly valuable in terms of giving insight into societies because people are talking about race or gender or class or nationality or urbanization or all these other issues that we've talked about but they're not quite as conscious about what they're saying yeah when you're talking about whether you like um the american boxer or the irish immigrant boxer you think of it as just supporting your guy but actually, there's a lot of social assumptions that come in with who do you support, Just, you know, in the, in the same way that my belated identification with the Philadelphia Phillies probably says something about me and, and Michael's identification with the Yankees says something about him. Um, but you know, even, with, even with that joking aside, when people talk about sports issues, they're talking about all these other issues that are really important within their lives. But we in some ways, if you know how to approach those conversations, it's less filtered than if you were asking, what do you think? If you were asking that same historical character, what do you think the proper role of the working class in society is? And so that's one of the ways in which it, um, one of the things that I find endlessly fascinating when when reading um, sports history works. Yeah, and I hope that it will give the listener some intellectual or analytical tools uh, to think more critically about how sports today is reflecting uh, those types of questions and topics and, and, and how their own attitudes about sport uh, are related to these broader questions in our own time. Absolutely. Um, when people say that sports in the 21st century are particularly politicized, I hope that today's uh, discussion uh illuminates that that is not the case and that sport sits at a nexus of, as Ken said, all the cultural issues that both um, plague and uh, yeah, plague a society would be. Uh, and it's important to keep that in mind. And I think, you know, of course, looking to the past is a good way to start thinking about the present. And, you know, I, it's particularly right now, um, with the debates that are going on and the fact that sports may not even happen in the traditional way that we've viewed them, that Ken joked at the beginning about the bubble um, that's going on with a variety of different sports. This is, you know, that's reflected. Like COVID is impacting the 21st century sports just in the ways in which tensions between immigrants impacted the ways in which baseball and cricket were assumed in the United States. And, the, you know, the, these... Thinking about the past is a good way to start thinking about the 
you know, ESPN, what you hear on ESPN today. And if you're interested in thinking more about sports history, um, we strongly encourage you to visit our website, thejuntocast.com. There will be an episode page for today's episode at which we will have a carefully curated bibliography of further reading, including primary and secondary sources. Um, you'll also be able to check there for our past episodes and other show notes and, and other further reading suggestions from our previous episodes. So that's thejuntocast.com. Um, please do go there and check it out. If you'd like to get in contact with us about anything that we've talked about today or ideas for future episodes, um, you can email us at thejuntocast at gmail.com. You can visit our Facebook page. And we'd find it particularly helpful if you could go to the iTunes store and leave us a review and leave, hopefully, a nice comment about what you've heard today. That's about all we've got time for this month. So I'm going to say thank you to Michael Hatton. Thank you, Ken. And thank you to Roy Rogers. Thanks, Ken. For joining me today. Thank you to you, the listeners, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. All right, here we go.